The most influential ownership group in all of thoroughbred racing is now officially in turmoil. What does the Stronach Group lawsuit mean for the family, the Preakness, the Breeders' Cup, and all of horse racing? We'll discuss. Plus, what effect would improved on-screen graphics and the analytics that go with them have on the racing product? Will they attract more fans, new fans? We have a lot to talk about on this edition of In the Gate. You might even need a riding helmet. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hit-bombing finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. It is fair to say that the Stronach Group, the consortium of holdings started by Ontario auto parts magnate Frank Stronach, is the most impactful ownership group in all of North American thoroughbred racing. In addition to owning prominent horses, the Stronach Group owns and operates six racetracks, among them Santa Anita, Gulfstream Park, and Pimlico, home of the Preakness, second leg of the Triple Crown. It's not unfair to say that as the Stronach Group goes, so goes American horse racing. Well, now, the patriarch of the empire, Frank Stronach, has filed an explosive lawsuit seeking to have his daughter, Belinda, removed as president and chairman. The lawsuit claims that Belinda and another company executive misused Stronach Group funds for their own personal purposes. Belinda Stronach and the other executive, Alan Osip, deny any kind of wrongdoing. Wow, a lot to process here. And so to do that, we welcome in one of the two men who broke this story, our good friend Bill Finley of the Thoroughbred Daily News, his partner T.D. Thornton, and he broke the news of this lawsuit. So, Bill, let's start by just stepping back for a second and characterize the evolution of Frank Stronach from kind of this outlier at the beginning of his rise to prominence, say in the early 90s, where he was looked at as kind of this maverick outsider, to the guy who basically saved American horse racing. Just talk about his evolution a little bit. Yeah, very. Uh, you know, Frank Sarnak, first of all, has owned horses as long as I can remember, but wasn't even a major owner. I mean, y- you may see his silks, and they're not the same uh, black and gold silks that you see today, in a $25,000 claiming race at Aqueduct on a Thursday. And, you know, it was not a big part of racing, but, you know, at some point, maybe, you know, he cashed in big on one of his auto parts companies or something like that, which is where he made his fortune in the auto parts industry, not in horse racing. All of a sudden, he became a huge player in horse racing with ambitions that were were through the roof. And he started buying up racetracks, most prominently San Mead and Gulfstream. He started uh, the Express Bet ADW. He bought Amtote. And he was a guy who almost like, I want to conquer the world of horse racing. I want to you know, be the guy who it's written on my tombstone, Frank Stronach saved horse racing. And he got off to a bad start. He made some real blunders. 
he fired executives like George Steinbrenner used to fire managers. I mean, some, some of these guys didn't literally didn't last six months. And he looked like kind of didn't know what he was doing, to be honest with you. But I would say over the last seven or eight years, he really seemed to turn it around. And now I'm not privy to the bottom line. Was he making money? Was he losing money? We, we don't know. However, the whole company really stabilized. He's had some executives there, most notably Tim Ritzo, who was, uh, of all things, a former jockey who used to ride and, at, at Suffolk Downs that had been there for years. I'm still not a huge fan of his idea of tearing down Gulfstream and, and rebuilding the new track, but a lot of other people like that. Gulfstream Park is thriving handle-wise. One of the most remarkable things is that it never used to run in the summer, and summer racing in Florida was, was something that no bettors paid any attention to. Now it's, I believe, the third most bet simulcasting signal in the country behind Naira and Del Mar. So Frank Stornak really turned things around. And one of the other things was that in a day and age where so many racetracks are owned by casino companies who don't care about horse racing and frankly would rather see it go away, this man was a breath of fresh air because whether he's doing things right or wrong, there was one thing that everybody was certain about him. He loved horse racing, he cared about the game, and he really almost took it upon himself to make it his personal mission to see that horse racing survives and thrives into the future. And it wasn't that many years ago that you started to see his daughter Belinda become more of the face of the company, which I don't think necessarily raised any red flags. I mean, he is over 80, and it would make sense that he was groom his daughter to take over the empire. Did anybody see this coming? I'm sure people, some people did, I did not, and I'm sure people within the Stronach company knew exactly what was happening. But to give you some background, Frank Stronach is 86 years old. Having said that, you cannot find a sharper, fitter 86-year-old on the planet. There's nothing about this man whatsoever to lead you to believe that he's lost any of his mental faculties, that he's not completely on top of things, he's in wonderful health. He's the type of guy that you could look at and say, he's going to live to be 100, and he's going to be the sharpest 100-year-old you've ever seen. Nonetheless, at 86 years old, plan did have to be put in place to what would happen to the company upon his death. And he has uh, two children, Belinda and a, and a son by the name of Andy. And uh, I don't know what went into the decision, but Belinda was really chosen to be the successor to Frank to run the Stornet Group upon his death. Now, from outside appearances, it appears that's what ha- was happening, that he was grooming her. And yes, she, she was more visible, but nobody, nobody read anything into that because, okay, if she's going to be the successor, why shouldn't she be more visible? Why shouldn't she start making some decisions on her own why shouldn't she show up at the Preakness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what was alleged in the lawsuit is that it was a lot more than that. That she basically, when she was, well, let's back up a little bit. Uh, Frank Schoenig went uh, off to his native country in Austria to run for political office in 2013, actually won. 
and handed, handed the keys to the car to her. I believe that he thought, okay, when I come back, Belinda, I'm back in charge and you run the company while I'm gone. Belinda apparently, allegedly thought that, no, dad, it's my turn now. You went away. I'm in charge. So it's an internal battle and a power play. Who is running the Stronach group? And clearly Belinda has taken steps to more or less push Frank aside and he wants his damn company back. That's what it comes down to. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Our good friend Bill Finley is with us here on In the Gate. He and his partner T.D. Thornton of the Thoroughbred Daily News broke the story of the lawsuit in the Stronic Group between Chairman Frank Stronic and his daughter Belinda. Now, obviously, it's too early to speculate on what this means for all of the Stronic Group holdings, which include the Maryland Jockey Club, including the second leg of the Triple Crown, the Preakness, held at Pimlico, and even things like the Pegasus World Cup, which is contested at Gulfstream, which we referenced before, and Santa Anita, which, along with Churchill Downs after this November, will have hosted over a quarter of the Breeders' Cups run so far. There have been 35. Santa Anita has hosted nine. So... What happens here? I mean, the Breeders' Cup, for example, doesn't want to go back to New York because of financial malfeasance. What are they going to think of this? Well, see, that's, I think you, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head here. I don't have the answer to that question. Nobody has the answer to that question. And that's very scary because the Stronic Group and, and is, I, I would say it's fair to say they're, they're the most important business entity in horse racing today. And if the Stronach group somehow implodes over this it would be a terrible thing for horse racing, but it's all speculation. We really don't know where this is leading. And on top of that, unless, you know, there is a reconciliation between the two and quickly, and if this thing does go through the court systems of, you know, in a different country, Canada, but I can't imagine the courts are much different than ours. These are the type of things that sometimes drag on for four or five years. And, you know, one question is, will Frank Sonic live to see the day that this settlement is resolved? You know, what we really need to happen is for someone to get these two together and say, resolve your differences for the good of the Sonic family and for the good of horse racing. And do, has it gotten so bitter that that's impossible? Again, I have no idea. But again, you, you nailed it. It's the uncertainty that has everybody so worried and upset. Frankly, I think at the end of the day, everything will be fine. But I don't know that for sure. And if it's not fine, oh boy, horse racing is going to have a serious problem on its hands. It's going to be very weird when our friends at NBC have to go to Gulfstream in January to broadcast the Pegasus World Cup and have to make nice to the Stronic group on television. I can't wait to see that happen. Well, Bill Finley, you've opened a firestorm. I hope you're happy with yourself. <laughs> Thank you so much for a few minutes here. All, all in a day's work, Bill. We are going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, you've seen the fancy graphics and the analytic data in stick and ball sport telecasts. 
How important would fancy graphics and analytic data be in horse racing? Would it bring more eyeballs? Would it bring more dollars to the sport? We'll discuss that when we come back. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. The words horse racing and technology don't often go well together. The term technology can mean designer drugs, or it can mean using analytics to decide a horse's progression rather than a horseman's instinct, a phenomenon you see now in stick-and-ball sports. Some technology has benefited the horse. Hyperbaric chambers, medical advances in treating such things as laminitis, and now you can even measure a horse's heart activity using an EKG app on a mobile phone. But what about technology to help the people who really keep this sport going? Fans and bettors. The pickings have been woefully slim. At this summer's Jockey Club Roundtable Conference, it was reported that only 24 of 74 tracks in this country provide a high-definition video signal. Technology was certainly one of the focuses of the conference, but what can realistically be done to improve the product from a technological standpoint, particularly to attract the younger audience, which expects a ramped-up production? Freelance writer Mark Berner had quite a bit to say about the technology question in an article he posted on the website Horse Race Insider, and we've reached out to Mark Berner to discuss the subject with us here on In The Gate. So, Mark, from your standpoint... What's the difference to the viewer slash better in seeing a typical TV picture of a race versus one with graphic enhancement like Trachis? Well, Trachis has a very old-fashioned digital image. I liken it to Pong, <laughs> if you remember that very rudimentary digital Some of us game. of a certain age do remember Pong. <laughs> yeah. The, the graphics that are available now are much better. They're able to manipulate them in uh, 3D, and they're not just little colored chiclets at the bottom of the screen representing the saddle cloth color. They actually look much more like a real horse race than the cartoonish things that they used with uh, Trachis. And Trachis is an old technology. Trachis is a technology that was developed by the National Hockey League. And it was their first-generation tracking system. Now, they're on their second-generation tracking system, which is called Ice Vision. They are close to uh, putting that into a service. And if you saw the All-Star game in uh, Tampa last year, they used it there, and they, they showed some of the things from the skills competition with the 3D graphics that they can produce. They have a seven camera system. And Trackus is a RFID and a ground-based GPS tracking system. And nobody's really using GPS anymore in the major leagues. Uh, horse racing is looking at it. It's just one of the new technologies that, that they're looking at. They're using a technology that's developed by a British firm called GMAX. And they do the hardware and software part. And then there's another company called Total Performance Data, which is the technical side. They manipulate the data. They create the graphics. They store the data. And this is good. Whatever system they choose, it's good that we have more data because the data that we're saving now, everybody thinks is like decades of old data. But 
Equibase only saves the data that appears in the PPs. They don't have some vast database to draw from decades old information, but going forward, when they choose their new data and timing companies, they, they will have a vast amount of data for future use. They'll capture every piece of data they can. So, um, you know, it, it's good for racing that they're trying to get more data. Uh, we are the first data rich sport that there was. And now, with everybody else uh, in the major leagues using a second-generation system, they uh, have surpassed Now, us. I have another question about data points later on, but for now, my question is, having that data, let's say, to put into past performances, understandable, in terms of, and I'm playing devil's advocate because I work at ESPN, but in terms of the consuming of a race on TV or on a simulcast, what benefit do you get from those graphics as opposed to you can see the horses running around the turn and down the straightaway? What are graphics adding for you? Well, graphics will, can add to the uh, afterwatch, you know, the replays. The, if you're watching a live race, you're seeing the horses run. You don't need to see a graphic representation of the horses run. But the data that is gleaned while they are running could be used in the race. Uh, they, we're used to uh, fractional times. So they'll take a quarter, half, three quarters mile finish time. But a lot of people are into sectional times, which are the times between the quarter and a half, the half and the three quarters, the three quarters of the mile. And you could see acceleration, deceleration. You can use this for in-race wagering, which we don't have here in the U.S. yet, but they are racing in, in Europe, in England, they will bet during a race. You can pick a point during the race where you can get in, take a position, or get out of the position that you're already in. So information that you can use during the race is advantageous for uh, new betting streams, new, new avenues of revenue where we could have in-race bets. Is this what you mean when you write that the timing system for races is woefully inadequate, or what exactly do you mean by that? Oh, no, no. I, what I meant by that was the GMAX system that they're using with the GPS. The accuracy is about a half a second. And I talked to uh, Jason Wilson, the president of Equibase, and he told me that... Uh, They've actually got it down a little better than a half a second. There are 95% of the time they believe they're within four-tenths of a second. But four-tenths of a second is a couple lengths. That's not good enough for timing. That's what I mean by woefully inaccurate. The margin of error is, is too great for timing erase. It's fine for tracking. And it's, it's fine for data points as far as uh, if a horse is losing ground or saving ground or how fast the horse is moving in between fractions, which is the sectional times I was talking about. But two lengths is too big of a margin. You, you can't go to the window and say, look, you know, I only lost by a length and a half. I want to cash my Well, ticket. just to play devil's advocate, if all races are timed in the same 
inadequate way, then it's still an apples-to-apples apples comparison when you're handicapping a race, which is all that matters, isn't it? Well, but not all races are timed this way. The standard that we've used in horse racing for years is called point-to-point, point, where there's a beam of light or an infrared beam and an eye to receive it on the opposite side of the track. And when that beam of light is broken by a horse, most of the time by a horse's nose, head, uh, you get an inaccurate time. These GPS devices are carried in the saddle cloth, which is a half a length away from the nose of the horse to begin with. So there, there are several problems with this system. There are a lot of other systems that they're looking at as well. Uh, Equibase isn't married to this system. They're just testing it out. They have other systems which they think might be more accurate. And one of them involves called RTK, real-time kinematic, where they enhance the signal to the satellite and back. And they're able to get more accurate times. I'm not sure the exact accuracy because it depends on the chipset that they use as well. So uh, when I spoke to Jason Wilson from Equibase, he, he told me about a number of different items uh, they're looking into, uh, different kinds of uh, RFID, RGK, GPS, a lot of initials, but they're all different ways of tracking in time. Well, hey, one of the Breeders' Cup Classic winners is Alphabet Soup, so I guess it all kind of makes sense there. Writer Mark Berner joining us here on In the Gate. Now, I wanted to get back to this point. Now, North American races have far more data points for races available than those in Europe. Here at home, you will see quarter-mile splits and the position each horse was in at each quarter-mile, etc. You don't even get that, really, in Europe. And yet... It seems that now having those data points on paper to go with video of the race isn't enough, based on what we're saying. So how much more can on-screen radar tracking, etc., add to handicapping as opposed to what's available in a chart? Well, you could get information such as stride length and frequency. You could get uh, acceleration from the gate. You get velocity of a horse throughout the race. And you can overlay all the horses in the field with a computer software where you can see the velocity of all the horses one on top of the other. You know, so there's many ways that you can manipulate the data if you have it. And there are a couple companies in England and another couple in France that are doing this and they're using it at Ascot and Longchamp and some of the big tracks and a lot of the little tracks as well, but they're starting to get a lot more data points over there. Like we use realistically, here. you've talked about all these possibilities that are being explored. What do you see happening regarding this technology and the presentation of horse races? Well, I see more tools that a handicapper can use uh, before and after the race. And what's unique about it is there are tools a handicapper can use during the race. So, for instance, in New Jersey, they're using fixed odds instead of a paramutual system where the odds change. And if you could use this and lock in to a fixed odds, you could make your bet before the race or during the race 
and get out of that position during the race or after the race. And you could even, with the exchange wagering, lay odds. If you want to, if you want to make a bet that a strong favorite won't win, you can go on their exchange and say, you got a horse that's four to five, and I'll give you eight to five if you want to bet with me. And you have to cover that bet. So you end up being a bookie. So there's many ways that you could do this, ways that aren't widespread in the United States yet. But in addition to us being able to do it here, they're able to sell this information overseas to markets where they already do this, which would be another new revenue stream for racing. And we could use all the revenue we can get, especially now we're competing with all the other sports. And, uh, you know, sports betting is going to become more pervasive as, as more states add it. And racing has to find a way to be competitive with the information that the other sports are using so we can compete for the betting dollar. Competition is good. It drives innovation. And we'll see where this goes. But thank you so much. I always love talking technology. It's good to have somebody in racing to talk technology with. Thank you so much, Mr. Burner. Anytime. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Our thanks to Mark Burner and to Bill Finley. This fall, and the next two years in fact, racegoers in Florida are not going to races live. They are not allowed. Because while Gulfstream Park operates the meet at Churchill-owned Calder Racecourse, the grandstands closed. Churchill doesn't want a crowd. They want to keep the casino at Calder. They don't want to offer racing. But to keep their license, they need paramutual bets. So the folks at Churchill have come up with an even crazier scheme, as audacious and obnoxious as it gets. Instead of racing, Churchill would offer paramutual high lie. It would build at Calder a temporary fronton. Now, it's true that high lie is part of Miami culture from way back, but under these circumstances, it strikes a desperate tone. The company that stages two of the most famous races in the world will do anything to get out of the racing biz. This desperate grasping at straws at a place that's already turned into a joke is a cruel blow for the sport. That's what it is. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time. 